92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. With this show, I hope to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good uh, for a devotional, but it's ideally done in groups or at least with partners. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but it's really aimed at novices and those who have struggled to read the Bible in the past. We do a lot to, uh, we say we encourage people to read the Word of God, but then we don't do much to provide them a workable plan uh, or any accountability. So the Word Diet is meant to help with that. More information on that project is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. I'm also going to start a Zoom meeting uh, for a new Word Diet group Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Uh, So if you're looking for uh, a workable plan to read the scriptures, some accountability, uh, maybe some online community during the lockdown, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, You can order the books online again, like I mentioned, at thoroughlyequipped.org, and I can send you a PDF of the first four weeks through Facebook or email. On April 16th, we'll cover week one which is uh, reading and journaling through uh, some early chapters in Genesis 1 through 4, uh, chapter 8, 13 through 9, 17, and then chapter 11 to wrap up the the daily reading. So read and journal on those, and then um, join us on the 16th. This is our third week on the book of Revelation. Uh, The first two weeks we covered Revelation 1, did an introduction Probably the highlight of that was to talk about the genre of apocalyptic. Uh, It's a complex book, lots of literary types in it, but apocalyptic is the one that we're least familiar with, uh, describing uh, the features of apocalyptic, its use of symbolism, hyperbole, and uh, numbers. Uh, We then talked about uh, verses 1 through 8, uh, introdu- the introduction and John uh, just moving naturally into worship as he considered the person of Christ uh, before him. And then uh, last week we talked about um, the key verse 9 uh, in chapter 1. We spent a good bit of time on that where John just reintroduces himself as, his, uh, as their brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And that's a phrase we'll come back to to today. Verses 12 through 16 have the vision of Jesus, which is uh, pretty famous. And then verse 20, uh, we're told about the seven lampstands, which are the churches, which are holding forth the light of Christ. And those seven churches are identified in verse 11. And that's the topic for this week, that as we move from chapter 1's depiction of Christ, we move into chapters 2 and 3 with our depiction of uh, these seven churches and the church as a whole. So we're moving from loving God in chapter 1 to loving others through Christ in the church in chapters 2 and 3. And we have a lot of, a lot of work to do to introduce this section. Uh, and then uh, at the end of that, I'll call an audible and either cover the church at Ephesus or the church at Smyrna, depending on how much time we have le- left to go. Lord, uh, be with us today as we study the scriptures, open them up, open our ears, open our eyes that we may see 
who you are, what you want from us and for us, and uh, let us hear from your word today. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network and this show, and we'll take a break before we get rolling. So stay tuned, and we'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 this week, our introduction. Uh, We've got quite a bit of work to do there, so let's get rolling. Uh, Last week, we talked about chapter 1, verse 9, which is... uh, can be considered Act One of Revelation. Uh, John's introduced. He has uh, a vision. He's told about the lampstands, the seven churches, and so on. So today we're really in Act Two, and Act Two is about the condition of the church in this world, with a focus on these seven churches that receive letters from John. This is the epistle part, or the heaviest epistle part, uh, the letters that John writes uh, to the churches and to us today. As an epistle, this is the most tangible part of the book for us. It roots the imagery of Revelation in some very clear reality. Now, some people might like to just skip this part and move right from the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1 to the worship in heaven of Revelation 4 and 5. But we're not given that option here or elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes people are so focused on heaven that they're no earthly good, it's been said. And others would say, hey, I I don't like organized religion, right? So they don't really like Revelation 2 and 3. They say they like Jesus, have faith, love God, etc. But then they don't want to be involved with a local church or in biblical community. And I always worry about people like that because uh, heaven's going to be filled with uh, people and with God. And if people don't want to be with God uh, on a weekly or daily basis, uh, or his people, you got to wonder if they're really going to enjoy heaven. But that's a topic for a different day. But Christianity is built on relationship and community, and so the church is a a crucial part of that. It's not simply an individual relationship with Jesus. The Lord's Prayer is our Father who art in heaven, right? Not my Father who art in heaven. I like, what, I like what Matt Proctor says here. He says, if you belong to Jesus, you also belong to those who belong to Jesus. He models for us an unconditional love for imperfect churches. Jesus wants you to learn to love a local church too. And so it's part of the discipleship process, part of sanctification, part of what's, uh, what Jesus wants for us and from us is not just an individual relationship with God uh, and with him, but also Uh, that relationship lived out in a community of believers. It's certainly possible to apply this section of Scripture to us as individuals and to the capital C Church, but the first application, or the, the interpretation rather, is that it's aimed at local or individual churches. God really cares about all three. He cares about individuals, He cares about the capital C Church, but He certainly cares about local and individual churches And we see that throughout the epistles of the New Testament, but also the seven epistles here in chapters two and three. Remember that the number seven is so prevalent in Revelation, but also this section, and seven always stands in for complete. And so uh, these these letters are meant for John's audience, uh, anyone who would have listened to it, but it's also meant for, uh, for all churches and for all time. Notice also that the local churches are going to differ in context. 
One of my favorite verses is from Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.22. He says, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I may, might save some. And so there's an, an individual context for individuals and for churches, and we'll certainly see that as we um, study these seven churches. Matt Proctor talks about how the, the church is not a series of franchises, right? It's not that all these churches are identical. They certainly have common mission and unity and uh, many things in common, but there's a, a tremendous number of differences between the seven churches we'll see here and churches in general. The next question we get to is why these seven churches? There were many others in the province of Asia. We're told about them in Colossians and 2 Corinthians throughout the book of Acts. So why did Christ uh, communicate to these seven churches through John? And let me give you five theories on this. The first is that they needed it the most, right? That whether it was commendation or critique, that these were the seven churches who needed it the most. Certainly a reasonable idea. Uh, second, they were the most prominent uh, churches at that time. They were in the provincial capitals in Asia of Rome, and so it made sense to get letters to them since they were the most prominent and influential. Third theory is that they were the most convenient. All seven of these uh, had postal district centers. It's interesting that the churches are presented in geographic order. They're all close together. They're about 50 miles apart in a circle moving clockwise, starting with the one closest to Patmos. So if you have a map handy, you can look at that, but just picture a, uh, a clock and moving clockwise uh, over a fairly narrow uh, band, only 50 miles. And so these were convenient churches for the letters to be sent. Fourth, uh, the churches may be presented in historical or chronological order. That's a really interesting theory, but it takes more time to develop and we really can't get to that until we've talked about the seven churches, so hold on to that thought. We'll get back to that later. The fifth theory is the most interesting, I think, and I think the most important as well for, if not for John's audience, then certainly for us. One commentator has said that it's a remarkably complete treatment of the capital C Church's problems and opportunities then and since. Ephesus has lost its first love. Smyrna has trouble with suffering. Pergamum, doctrinal impurity. Thyatira, immorality. Sardis, they're spiritually dead. Philadelphia has great opportunities. And Laodicea is lukewarm. It's hard to imagine a more complete uh, subset of the problems that churches deal with. Again, God's word is universal, but it's also local. Each letter is also going to close with a prophetic he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, presumably that's meant for then and now. Notice it says what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And so again, that could be taken as referring to the seven churches receiving this uh, circular letter, but also, uh, give, especially given the role of the number seven and the, the applicability of the scriptures to modern times as well, you know, this is clearly being written to us. It's something for us to listen to. Uh, that last phrase is similar to what Christ said he, uh, with in Mark 4, 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so are we going to hear what Christ is trying to say to these seven churches and therefore to us as well? For new churches or churches considering a new vision, 
preaching through Revelation 2 and 3 can be a wonderful way to uh, stir the pot and get people to think and talk about what they want their church to be. When uh, my wife and I started a Sunday school class at our church, uh, that was the, the text that I used uh, to, to foster that discussion uh, because that, this treatment of problems and opportunities is, is very much what um, churches and Sunday schools, communities of faith have an opportunity to deal with. So the irony of, of uh, ignoring Revelation, particularly this portion of rich, applicable, Christ-centered, Christ-authored, easy-to-understand scriptures that we're missing uh, a tremendous uh, passage here in these two chapters. So we're not going to do that. We're going to spend a lot of time focusing on the richness of this passage. One of the interesting things in studying Revelation is that commentators focus uh, more efforts often on particular parts of uh, the book. And so William Barclay's uh, famous commentaries on Revelation, uh, he spends 30% of his time on these two chapters. So while the two chapters uh, are about 10% of the book, Barclay spends three times that much time per chapter in his commentary. There's so much to say about Revelation 2 and 3. The next big topic is to talk about the general sevenfold format of these letters. And at this point, it might be useful uh, for you to make a little chart. Uh, you, you could list the seven churches uh, on the left-hand side of a piece of paper. And then um, there are six categories to put along the top of the paper. There's an intro to the specific church. So you might write church on your uh, chart. There's a description of Christ. All of these happen to begin with C, by the way, which is convenient. Uh, third, there's a commendation. Fourth, there's a complaint or critique and its subsequent correction. So those two go together, critique and correction. Fifth, there's a challenge. So there's an exhortation or warning to each of the churches. Uh, don't put this in your chart, but the sixth is a command to listen to the Spirit. That happens uh, each time, so there's no need to add that to a chart. And then seventh, put this in your chart as well, there's a promise or reward to the overcomer. Okay, yeah, I know overcomer begins with an O, but it's overcomer, right? So it begins with a C, kind of, sort of. So uh, overcomer. So on your chart, it'd be uh, across the top, church, Christ, commend, critique and correction, challenge, and overcomer. Now, the seven typically go in that order. There are exceptions. We'll come back to that um, in just a few minutes and then as it pops up here and there. But there is a general pattern here, and it's worth wrestling with why there, there would be a pattern. The first is that uh, John will open with a description of Christ, and that's to establish the authority, the credibility, and the relationship. Uh, he's going to remind them of the great things that Christ has done for them. And it's the same, really, whenever we're talking about belief in God. We start with theology, hopefully good theology. Uh, we then move to belief, uh, embracing the grace that we have in Christ. Uh, then we talk about the resources that we have in Christ, right? Our identity in Christ, how he empowers us through the Holy Spirit. And then we get to responses. And the same thing is happening here, right? We're told something about Jesus. It informs our theology. We accept that we embrace it, we have those as resources, and then we get into 
what's, uh, what God wants for us and from us. Okay, it's time to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Pray, provide, and promote the work of this network as it's part in God's kingdom. Please spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. Be back in a minute. Dependable, trustworthy, Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. All right, welcome back to The Word Diet. We're talking about the sevenfold format of the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And the pattern opens with a description of Christ. We talked about that just before the break. Uh, the second thing in the pattern is that there's a commendation before the critique. And this is an important lesson. We usually teach this to kids, but sometimes we have trouble applying it as, as adults. It's really important to start discussions off with kind words or common ground as we can. And then we move to confrontation. And that's exactly what Christ is going to do with these seven churches here. Matthew Henry says, Our Lord Jesus, as an impartial master and judge, takes notice of both, though he first observes what is good and is most ready to mention this, yet he also observes what is amiss and will faithfully reprove them for it. I think all of us would agree with the principle here, but it's it can be really tough to apply it. And I would say generally in the church, we're not very good at doing this, having difficult conversations, meaningful and difficult com- conversations. So we either fail to confront at all, or we commend without confronting, we confront without commending. Uh, maybe there's no relationship. Christ uh, is reminding them of his relationship with them, which implies that he has a relationship with them. So sometimes we try to confront uh, without that. So our goal should be to confront correctly, as needed, and truth and grace. Galatians 6.1 says, you, are, you who are spiritual, restore a sinner gently. And I love that verse because it talks about restoration uh, as the goal. Uh, you who are spiritual, this is something that's difficult, something we rely on uh, the Holy Spirit to help us with and to do it gently. And uh, this, is the, this, this pattern in Revelation 2 and 3 is yet another reminder of the importance of this. But while there's a responsibility for those who would commend and critique, there's also a responsibility for those who would listen. Each letter has an encouragement sent to he who has an ear. And so the listening part is also important. We, we should listen to the Spirit and the Spirit-filled Christians who come our way. One of my favorite verses is Ephesians 4.29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And so, yes, we've got to do our best to deliver accommodation and critique in appropriate balance, tact, truth, and grace. But there's also obviously a responsibility uh, for those who would listen to this. I appreciate Paul defining success in ministry not as, you know, a number of conversions or anything, any of the metrics we get excited about, but he just defines it as faithfulness. Uh, However people respond, he wants to take care of his business uh, in a God-honoring manner. He wants to faithfully deliver the message that he's been given, and then it's up to the listener uh, to respond and receive that. So there is a general pattern, but it's not universal in these letters. So it's not mechanical. 
And I think that's something that we can mix up as well. Sometimes we get, we do things pretty well, but we do it the same way every time. And that's coming from the flesh, not the spirit. So while there's a general pattern to observe here, there are also many exceptions to that. And I think that informs how we go about uh, working as individuals and as churches. There are general rules and principles, but there are certainly specific contexts where our response should differ. And that context uh, determines the content and determines the counsel, right? Our counsel should not be mass-produced, but it should be specific and spirit-led. Billy Graham says, therefore, we, we must search the letters to find exactly the right word at the right time that applies to us and to our struggles. Again, back to Ephesians 4.29, where it talks about what's helpful according to his needs, right? That what is a helpful word to one person is not helpful to another. And we'll talk about that as we go. Each city I'll describe briefly because it sets the context in a particular time and it explains the problems, challenges, and opportunities for each. And as we think about our own cases, right, our, our times, our work, our region, our country, our culture, our economy, uh, our region, right, uh, the different, difference between the South and the North and the West and the East, all these um, mean that what's right or ideal counsel is going to vary with that context. So we've talked about the general format, but there are some specifics within the format that are worth noting as well. So there's a narrow or tailored description of Christ in each of these letters. So chapter one gives a full description of Christ in that vision. And what John's going to do in each of the seven letters is is invoke the appropriate pieces of that description for each context. And I think it's the same thing, again, when we minister to other people. Right? When we're talking about the character of God, we don't trot out the same characteristic in every context. Right? There's a time to talk about God's justice or God's mercy or God's love. And so we, we bring that out in a way that's particular to the context that's in front of us. Likewise, these churches have a range of problems. Some of the problems are internal, some are external. Some of their sins are omission, some are commission. Uh, They're going to range from prosperity to persecution, from complacent to tentative, from dead orthodoxy to active heresy. And so the council will differ accordingly. What we say to people is a function of uh, their context and the particular things that they're struggling with. Uh, I like John Stott's observation here. He says that the errors are persecution, error, and sin. And he compares those to the devil's three tactics, uh, or, or sees those as the devil's three tactics. It's similar to the three enemies we have as believers, right? The world persecutes, the devil tempts us into error, and the flesh tempts us into sin. Uh, and later in Revelation, these three will be represented as the beast, the first beast from the sea, which represents the state and uh, its ability to persecute. Uh, the beast from the earth, which is false religion, which tempts us to error. And the third is the harlot or Babylon, which is the world system, which uh, tempts us to sin. So all three of these, persecution, error, and sin, in some combination are uh, trouble for these seven churches, just like they're trouble for us today. Now, one thing that should comfort us is that God knows these things. He knows we're struggling After each letter's introduction, Christ opens with, I know. I know this, I know that. And so, again, it's a picture of his caring and his intimacy, his knowledge. This is not the God of deism who creates and 
walks away. This is a God who knows. He knows what we're struggling with. He's been tempted in, in every way, but yet was without sin. We can hide or be hidden from each uh, from others or even ourselves, but we can't hide from God. And that should be a comforting thing. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Now, depending on our context and our perspective and our relationship with God in the moment, God's knowledge of us can be terrifying, but it should be reassuring. And hopefully for the believers then and today, God's knowledge of us, God's care and concern for us, his intimacy with us uh, should prompt us to be reassured and to move forward in uh, his grace and love. One last thing to say here, this is a focus on church's problems. There's really not much mentioned about individuals. So while we can make applications to individuals, that's not typically who this is being written to. So a couple of thoughts here. One is that there can be good people in bad churches and bad people in good churches, right? So that uh, we're going to see opportunities for each here. And second, it's interesting that these are written to churches, not to prominent individuals. So this, again, implies God's concern for the community of believers, not merely individuals. He cares about his church and the local congregations. Another thing that's specific to each church is that they each receive a particular correction or rebuke. And often these are pretty rough. You look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it describes them as a dead church with a good reputation. So that would be an ouch to hear and to read. But uh, in each case, the correction or rebuke that's given to each church is the most loving thing to do. I'm reminded here of Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. It says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And then down to verse 11, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Matt Proctor encourages uh, encourages us not to mistake his directness for hostility. And then he observes, hard as it may be to receive such a word of correction can save us. And so Christ does that for us, and hopefully we're able to do that in the spirit for others as well. Finally, Although each church is exhorted to overcome, there is a different reward promised to each. And so we'll talk about that as we go. This exhortation to overcome is interesting and can be confusing, so I'm going to deal with that after the break. But I want to leave you with this, that all of that we've just talked about, the generals and the specifics of dealing with people, dealing with churches, are all addressed by Jesus in these letters and also in his earthly ministry. So we'll be back, be back in a minute. Um, I want to encourage you on Facebook to like Pure Radio and to friend me. Uh, we will post the podcast on Facebook and SoundCloud as they become available. And I'd encourage you to interact on my Facebook when the program is posted there. Questions, comments, and potential topics uh, for us to talk about down the road. Good to be with you today, and uh, we'll be back in a minute. Become a P3 Partner. P3 Partners are Pure Radio listeners who pray for Pure Radio each day, provide financial support to our programmers, promote Pure Radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. P3 Partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, 
devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 partner today. Welcome back to The Word Diet. I've been introducing Revelation 2 and 3 so far on today's show. Talked about uh, the seven churches in general and how they represent a remarkably complete treatment of the problems of the capital C church and local churches. And then we talked about the general and the specific parts of the formatting. The letters are quite similar. There are differences. Um, and so the, the both the pattern uh, that's held to in general and the differences uh, are of interest. And we covered that in the first half. So where we're at now is to spend a, a chunk of time on this promise to the overcomers. It closes each of the seven letters and it's a topic uh, that's important, but also potentially confusing. So I want to devote a chunk of time to talking about it. Now, the word overcome is the Greek word nikeo, and this was the winged, a reference to the winged Roman goddess of military victory. If you think about uh, the word Nike, or the, the company Nike and its uh, title, uh, that's where it comes from. Uh, and it means to conquer, conquer, to vanquish, or to prevail. The word is used 17 times in Revelation. Eight of them are here in chapters 2 and 3. Seven of those are uh, a reference to the, the um, recipients of the letter. And the last one in the church of Laodicea connects it to how Christ has overcome himself. And that's really the combination we're looking for. We're called to overcome, but Christ has gone before us and overcame. Uh, there are nine other uses in Revelation, and not all of them are good news. Uh, there are four other references, uh, two to the white horse who conquers and comes in conquest in Revelation 6-2. And twice, believers are overcome uh, by the powers uh, that be. Uh, chapter 11-7 talks about the two witnesses being overpowered. And chapter 13, verse 7 talks about Christians being conquered. So it's not all good news. But the bulk of the references are to us and to Christ. Uh, 15.2 talks about us being victorious. 21.7 has the promise that he who overcomes will inherit the new heavens and earth. And then probably the top reference uh, in Revelation is chapter 12, verse 11, that we overcome Satan through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And you might, might remember that's the exact same phrase that we saw in the key verse 9 of chapter 1. The other two references in Revelation are to Christ. One in the past tense, Jesus has triumphed in Revelation 5.5, and the second one in the future tense, Revelation 17.14, the Lamb will overcome. This word nikeo is used a few times outside of Revelation as well. Uh, Paul uses it twice in Romans 12.21, 1 Peter 2.20, Luke 11.22, John really likes the word, though. It appears six times to refer to us uh, and us through God, uh, six times in 1 John. And then probably the most famous reference is John 16, 33, where Christ says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. That's a promise. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So this is a very strong word. Uh, when we overcome, it's not succumbing to or even merely enduring something. But again, this, 
sense that we talked about with patient endurance earlier, right? It's meant to be a, a triumphant, uh, victorious approach uh, to difficulties and persecution. And of course, the church then was going through a ton of that. Uh, whatever we go through today, John's original audience was going through a lot of trouble in many cases. The Christian walk can be difficult, and uh, there are benefits and costs to taking a stand. And we've got to decide whether we're going to take a stand or settle for something less. Dallas Willard talks about the cost of non-discipleship as compared to the more famous cost of discipleship. There's a cost of following Christ. And if we believe that God is good and knows what's best and wants what's best for us, then the cost of non-discipleship, failing to follow him, is greater than the cost of discipleship. So we acknowledge the cost of discipleship, what it takes to follow, but we believe that the cost of non-discipleship are greater. And so it's in our best interest to follow a good and great God. Each of these uh, uh, promises to the overcomers are promised rewards. And each time it's interesting that they're motivated by some reference to eternal life and a reminder that Christ has defeated death. And so I think that's important for us as well, right? That as we're going through difficult circumstances, we remember uh, eternal life and heaven and what's in, in the future, but we also remember the past, what Christ has done in defeating death already. Now, who are the overcomers? That's an important question. Now, there are two basic views. The first is that it's all believers, or at least all genuine believers. But there's two huge problems with this view. The first is actually from the text itself, that other uses of the term overcome imply that it's a reference to a subset of believers. So you might think of 1 John 2, 13 and 14. The second is even larger and, and theological and doctrinal, is that if we define it that way, it's, it's hard to imagine how you avoid um, a works-based salvation. Basically, if you don't overcome, then you're not getting in. And so it seems like uh, it's defined in terms of the works that we um, do or don't do, and then our salvation is dependent on what we do. Uh, this implies that even a weak faith, and that's kind of a, an insult if you're facing deaths and threats, uh, at least from someone who lives a comfortable life, uh, to, to criticize someone as having weak faith. But a weak faith can somehow be insufficient uh, to us. And again, does it depend on us or does it depend on what Christ has done for us? And if that is the case, how would we know that we have sufficient faith if we haven't been severely persecuted to try this faith. Maybe individuals have a weak faith, but they just don't know it because they haven't been persecuted enough. So there's just a number of problems with this. So the angle we're going to take here is that overcomers we're going to define as victorious believers, those who refuse to succumb to the identified problem, but gain increasing victory over it through the power of God. As you may know, this is a contentious and uh, often debated doctrinal topic, and we're not going to solve that here. But I would leave you with uh, a passage I think that's been helpful for me on this. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, where Paul writes, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And that uh, passage seems to indicate that there's three possible responses, right? There's those who endure, that'd be the overcomer here. Second, there's those who disown him, right? Who overtly, explicitly deny and disown Jesus and put him aside. 
And then third, there are those who are faithless, which seems to be a softer uh, sort of uh, failure, uh, not the hardened disowning of earlier in the passage, but a, a failure of the faithless. And I, uh, I think that passage gives me at least comfort uh, about how to, to deal with this passage. But in any case, we've got to come up with something here. Believing overcomers uh, is a test of faith. Uh, it's certainly a test of faith for believers, but it's not a matter of salvation. Now, all of this points to uh, the fact that we're not perfect disciples, we're progressing disciples. Uh, Proverbs 24, 16 says, a righteous man falls seven times and gets up seven times. First Timothy 4, 15, Paul encourages Timothy to show the people his progress, right? Not his perfection. And so we're looking to progress. We're not saved by our own works, uh, however much persecution we go through. For John's original audience, persecution and emperor worship was either a reality or a likelihood. And so that's the context this is uh, to be read in. You know, of course, John himself has endured tremendous persecution. He's been boiled in hot oil. He's been exiled to Patmos. Uh, he will be released in 96 AD after Domitian's death, but he's the only one of the apostles who's not martyred. Matthew, killed by the sword. Mark is dragged through the streets of Alexandria. Luke is hanged on an olive tree. Peter's crucified in Rome upside down. James the Great beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Lesser thrown from atop the temple and beaten to death. Bartholomew's flayed alive. Andrew's bound to a cross, preached to persecutors till he died. Thomas was run through with a lance. Jude was shot through with arrows. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Barnabas stoned. Paul, just read 2 Corinthians 12 if you want to load. And then he's eventually beheaded. And so these early apostles uh, were martyred. They were enduring tremendous persecution, right? It's interesting for all of them, uh, you know, the invitation to follow Christ started with come and see, and then it moved to come and follow, and then come and abide, and then go out. But then eventually the invitation was to come and die. And we die to ourselves, right? We're living sacrifices. Uh, Romans 12, 1 talks about we present our, our bodies. We're willing to die. We're willing to self-sacrifice. But in most of our cases, we're not going to be called to the sort of persecution. We're not dealing with the sort of emperor worship that John's audience typically was dealing through. But, you know, just like uh, any uh, believer early on, uh, that's not the first thing that's talked about, right? Martyrdom. Uh, we talk about faith and come and see and come and follow. And then uh, sometimes it cranks up to uh, serious levels of self-sacrifice, including martyrdom in some cases. As I mentioned last week, the parable of the talents is useful here, that they were ten-talent people with respect to persecution, and many of us uh, are one-talent people. But still the cost can be large. Uh, our proclamation that Jesus is Lord can be just as radical today, depending on particular circumstances and context. Billy Graham said, we think of modern Christians living under atheistic or totalitarian regimes as being the only ones who must daily decide their ultimate loyalties. It is not true. Every Christian in every nation decides daily to be loyal to Christ and the world he is building or to give in to this age and its values. There are certainly blessings of only having one talent of persecution. A lot of opportunities there, but there's also some benefits of, of uh, being ten talents. You tend to stay focused. You tend to know who the real believers are. 
So wherever we're at, right, whether one or ten talent, we're still called to be faithful with that which we've been given. And keep in mind that who fails in the parable of the talents? It's the one talent follower, right, uh, the servant that, uh, that fails. And so whatever the, the talents were given in this realm, we need to be faithful with those. So how do we overcome? Well, first, it's a matter of God's provision and our participation. Romans 8.37 talks about us being more than conquerors through him who loved us. But we have to participate this in, uh, in this as well. Genesis 32.28, Jacob is renamed Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So it's 100% God and it's 100% us. Second, we need to keep a Christ-centered or eternal perspective. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what, uh, what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is seen is eternal. In Philippians 3.20, Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And then the great Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will will be revealed in us. So we need to keep a Christ-centered or eternal perspective. And third, we need to renew our fellowship with God. We need to rely on the Spirit. That's the only possible strength in which to endure and to overcome. And we need intimacy with Christ. That's the best and most powerful motive from which to endure or overcome. More than strictly obedience. We're going to see this a lot in these seven churches that they had struggled uh, in this regard, uh, confusing intimacy with Christ with their obedience to Christ. And there's obviously an overlap there. But when the focus becomes obedience, uh, we're likely to get into trouble. The most important thing is relationship and then obedience follows from that. Okay, we're going to take our last break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org and spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. We'll see you in a minute. Tune to us for the pure gospel on the radio. Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. All right, welcome back to the Word Diet. With our last segment, we're going to jump to the church at Smyrna, the second letter, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. It'll take less time to cover, and it fits better with the themes that we've been developing in this show. Revelation 2.8 starts, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Hopefully you heard and read uh, what we talked about in the first three segments of the show, uh, the general pattern and the specific Uh, differences between the seven letters to the churches. First, a bit of context about Smyrna. It was a great trading city with a beautiful harbor, largely built up by Alexander the Great. It was considered the flower of Asia, and it's a city that still exists today. It's Izmir in Turkey. It was a prominent and patriotic center of emperor worship, including the first temple built 
to a Caesar in 195 BC and then another in 25 AD. And as the text uh, notes here, the church was experiencing, uh, verse 9, fierce opposition, uh, both physical and fiscal, right? A grinding poverty and tremendous persecution that the text calls afflictions. So they're suffering from grinding poverty, and Christ tells them, verse 9, yet you are rich. It reminds me of James 2.5. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? So these believers were poor in temporal blessings, but rich in spiritual and eternal blessings, and apparently living that way in their position in Christ. They were also suffering from tremendous persecution. And I'll leave you to your own research on this, but if you want to Google the names Polycarp, Blandina, Sebast, the soldiers, the 40 soldiers there in the year 320, or the testimony of Pliny and Trajan as they martyred Christians, you'll read some remarkable stories from the early church about how they dealt with tremendous persecution and the impact it had on non-believers. Again, this is far from our experience, at least for most of us, but chapter 2, verse 11 is written to the churches, and so it's meant for all of us for all time. So what relevance does it have for us today? Well, as as I've mentioned before, I mean, this this is certainly occurring in many parts of the world, so that we would pray for the people, the natives, and the missionaries that are in countries that are hostile to the faith. Second, it provides perspective for the present. Are we thankful that we have limited persecution? And maybe we ask, why aren't we suffering more? Are there contexts where we should be suffering more, but we're compromising with the faith? We're not uh, stepping out in faith boldly enough. Are we willing to suffer? Genesis 22, Abraham was willing to, to sacrifice his son, even though it didn't come to that. So it's important to look in our hearts and, and pray and, and reflect on whether we are willing to handle uh, this sort of thing. And third, it provides a challenge, a warning, and encourages us to be prepared for a possible future. Are we ready for the kind of persecution that's described here with the church at Smyrna? So if you're filling in that chart we talked about earlier on with uh, how, how the letters are laid out to the seven churches, next thing to note is that is what's missing here in the pattern. There is no rebuke in this letter. Maybe you didn't catch that. Uh, there's only encouragement given here. And I think a couple interesting possibilities here, right? One is that the context is so difficult that Christ decides not to offer any rebuke at all. It would be piling on to offer any kind of critique in this context. Or, and I think more likely the more hopeful answer, is that they were doing really well, especially given the circumstances, the trials that they have, that the trials were building character, building their dependence on Christ. It's also interesting that the only two cities of the seven not to receive a rebuke are the only two of the seven that exist today. Now in verse 8, Christ is identified as the one who is the first and the last who died and lived again. And this is exactly what they needed to hear. Christ had been through life at its worst, including experiencing and conquering death. And look at the beginning of verse 9. It says, I know your afflictions. He was not just aware of them, right? But he had experienced them uh, on his own. And then we have the first and the last, which is a reference to God as the supreme, omnipotent, unchanging, final and eternal authority and sovereign. 
uh, and then back to Christ, that he had been obedient in the face of death and had defeated it. So these would be terrific encouragements for the church at Smyrna. In verse 9, Christ identifies co-authors of the attack. Verse 9 fingers Satan. Verse 10, the devil. Uh, The word there in verse 10 is diabolos, which means the accuser. And presumably the devil is working through others here, but John wants to point to the primary cause of the attack. Verse 9 also uh, mentions Jews, and then it uh, mentions them as a synagogue of Satan. And this is reversing a favorite expression of the time uh, that that the Jews used. William Barclay says, it's as if John was saying, you call yourselves the assembly of God, when in fact you are the assembly of the devil. And this is reminiscent of John 8, where Christ goes back and forth with the Jews about, uh, and the religious leaders, about who their real father is. So that's John 8, 31 through 44. Of course, this is a common problem in the early church. You see it throughout the book of Acts. Judaism was a rival faith to Christianity. Some of that was preserving power. Some of it was legitimate confusion about Christianity as a heresy. Uh, But in any case, uh, it was common for the Jews to attack the Christians throughout the book of Acts. And then uh, we see it also here with the church at Smyrna. Verse 10 is an exhortation to have courage. Do not be afraid. It's the most frequent command in the Bible. You know, courage requires something to fear in the first place, right? Courage is overcoming something that we could be afraid of. And so certainly persecution of this sort would fit that bill. In addition to the exhortation, it's interesting that later in verse 10, there are details of their forthcoming suffering. If you want to look ahead to chapter 3, verse 10, the church of Philadelphia receives something similar. For the church at Smyrna, there's a particular mention of being put in prison. And so if you combine the reference to Satan with the reference to prison, you see Satan working with the state. This is something we'll come back to in Revelation 13. Often the devil works through the government. Uh, to persecute Christians. They could also be encouraged that the trial would be only for a few of them, and it would only be temporary. Now, you can read 10 days literally or figuratively. Figuratively, it means a short time, uh, so it's not something that's going to last forever, at least compared to eternal. Uh, And then it can be taken as figurative for the 10 Roman rulers uh, J. Vernon McGee talks about Diocletian, who's the tenth, leads the tenth persecution, and it happened to last ten years. So when that happened, you can imagine the encouragement <laughs> of a sort of going through that trial as it lines up with the number ten that uh, John has used here. In any case, however, it would have been fulfilled, whether a literal ten days or fulfilling Diocletian's persecution, it would be taken as an encouraging sign of God's providence. So it's cool either way. And finally, in the last half of verse 10 and the last half of verse 11, Christ promises a sure prize for the faithful, an ultimately, ultimate or eternal reward, the crown of life, and that they will not be harmed by the second death. Again, this can't be about getting into heaven. That's a gift. Right, this is something that they have uh, earned, so to speak, through uh, their, um, their faithfulness. Uh, it's a, a much longer discussion than we have time for here, but crown of life is apparently a, a picture of an upgraded quality of life in eternity. The topic of rewards in heaven 
uh, is too long to get into here, but I would commend to you passages like 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, and James 1, 12, uh, or maybe a, a study of this on your own. And we can interact on Facebook if you want to talk through the particulars of this. Now, there are two terms for crown in the Greek. There's stephanos, which is the term here, and there's diadema, which is the royal crown. So Christ uh, often wears the royal crown, the diadem, diadema. Uh, but here it's stephanos, and this is the winner's crown in the Olympic Games. And it was also used to reward faithful service in government. And both of those uh, are nice analogies to what we have here, right? That we are uh, running a race. That's the First Corinthians 9 passage. And then we're in God's government, his kingdom, and we're being rewarded for faithful service. The end of verse 11 promises no second death. This is also referred to in chapter 20, verse 14. So the first death would be the body. The second death would be the soul or the spirit. And of course, they would not endure the, the second death. They're being reminded of that here. And of course, this would be a great hope given that their first death is imminent and likely here by persecution. D.L. Moody observes that he who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die once. It's a clever way to think about it. And I guess summing all this up, Matthew Henry says, the life so worn out in his service or laid down in his cause shall be rewarded with another and much better life that shall be eternal. And you can see how this would be such an encouragement to the believers of that time, the believers of that time, and the believers of any time that are, in de that are dealing with uh, either minor or especially major persecution, even to the point of martyrdom. Christ is saying here, focus on the reward, focus on uh, that you will not be harmed by the second death. Uh, I'll be with you in heaven. Serve faithfully. Don't be afraid. Walk humbly and courageously with your God and empowered by the Spirit. And that's what the believers there are encouraged to do by Christ's great words here in verses 10 and 11. So again, whether we're 10 talent, 5 talent, or 1 talent with respect to persecution, our goal should be to, to be faithful in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of that trial. So as we wrap up, consider where that is. Let's think about a particular circumstance where you're struggling with persecution, even if it's really mild, right? How can you go through that trial in a way that honors God more effectively? How can you be more faithful and obedient in the midst of that trial? Dear Jesus, be with us as we go through daily life. Go, go with us and empower us to walk courageously. It's so easy to just take uh, our freedom for granted, to take our freedom in you for granted, to trample your grace. Uh, but you want great things for us and from us. And in the area of persecution, in the area of difficult conversations, and in the, in the, uh, sharing the gospel with people, where we shy away from someone giving us an odd look, where we're worried about losing a friendship, we're worried about creating awkward moments. Lord, there are times you call us to faithfulness that is difficult and even to risk persecution, or we're dealing with persecution and uh, we're tempted to shy away and to compromise. Lord, give us strength. Help us to have an eternal perspective as we go through uh, those difficulties. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So I hope the first three segments were helpful in uh, helping you understand Revelation 2 and 3 uh, in broad terms. We'll do the church at Ephesus next week. And I hope this last segment on Smyrna has been an encouragement for you to deal with persecution of whatever type that you face. We will post the podcast for this on Facebook and SoundCloud as they become available. Uh, please friend me on Facebook and interact there. Uh, send me messages, happy to reply to deal with questions and comments. We've addressed some complicated issues and some of them I've not uh, decided to explore because those would be programs in their own right. But I uh, just pray that uh, you'll find this beneficial. We hope you join us. you'll join us next week on The Word Dive. Responsible, credible, pure radio, 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2.